Part four of Works of Sallust. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Works of Gaius Salustius Crispus. Translated by Alfred W. Pollard. Catiline Conspiracy. Part two. It was in a state of this magnitude and corruption that Catiline, as was indeed easily done, gathered round him, to serve his bodyguard, troops of men stained by every vice and crime, every gambler, adulterer, and glutton, who, by the gratification of his passion, had cruelly impaired his patrimony, every one whose debts had been swollen to buy indemnity for some shameless deed, all parasites from every quarter, all who had committed sacrilege, who had been tried and condemned, or whose deeds made them fear a trial, all who gained a living by polluting their tongues with perjury, or their hands with their countrymen's blood, in fine, all who were harassed by need, or by the pangs of conscience, it was those who were Catiline's intimate associates. While did any one as yet free from guilt chance to become his friend, by daily intercourse and allurement, he was easily made a fit fellow to the rest. It was especially, however, the intimacy of young men that Catiline affected, and their pliable and unformed minds fell an easy prey to his wishes. Complying with the several forms of youthful passion, he helped some to mistresses, bought hounds and horses for others, and, in fine, spared neither his purse nor his honor to make them his faithful creatures. I am aware that there were some who held the belief that the young men who made Catiline's house their resort behaved with too little regard for decency, but the report obtained credence rather from other considerations than from any direct testimony. At the very outset of his youth, Catiline had engaged in many scandalous intrigues, one with a high-born maiden, another with a priestess of Vesta, and others in like manner set law and morality at defiance. Finally, he was seized with a passion for Aurelia Oristilla, a lady in whom no respectable man ever found anything to praise except her beauty, and on her hesitating to marry him in her dislike for a grown-up stepson, killed the youth, so it is positively believed, and thus cleared his house for the unhallowed union. In this deed I trace one of the chief causes of Catiline's bringing his attempt to a point. His impure mind, hateful alike to gods and men, could find rest, neither awake nor asleep. Terribly was his frenzied soul ravaged by the pangs of conscience. His countenance grew bloodless, his eyes haggard, his pace now hurried and now slow. Madness had plainly stamped upon his face and expression. The young man whom, as narrated above, he had enticed, he kept instructing in many varieties of crime. It was from their ranks that he provided false witnesses to facts and documents. He bade them think cheaply alike of honor, fortune, and danger. And then, when he had crushed their sense of fame and decency, his yoke became heavier. If motives for crime were for the moment wanting, they had to ensnare or assassinate the inoffensive, as though they had offended. He would rather, forsooth, indulge his wickedness and cruelty without a cause than allow hand or brain to become sluggish by disuse. In reliance on friends and associates such as these, 
and encouraged by the enormous prevalence of debt throughout the world, and by the number of Sulla's soldiers who had squandered their fortunes, and were now dwelling on the memory of plunder and ancient victories, and hoping for civil war, Catiline formed a plan for destroying the Constitution. There was no army in Italy. Nius Pompeius was engaged in a war in far distant lands. He had great hopes of success in his own candidature for the consulship. The Senate was unprepared for any emergency. Everything was in peace and quietness, and here Catiline saw his opportunity. It was the first of June, in the year when Lucius Caesar and Gaius Fugulus were consuls, that he began making overtures to single individuals, encouraging some and sounding others, and expatiating on his own resources, on the lack of preparation in the government, and on the great prizes a conspiracy would gain. When he had satisfied himself on the points he desired, he summoned a meeting of all those whose needs were the most pressing, and spirit the most daring. To this meeting came Publius Lentulus Sura, Publius Altronius, Lucius Cassius Longinus, Gaius Sethegus, Publius and Servius, the two sons of Servius Sulla, Lucius Varguntius, Quintus Annius, Marcus Porcius Lyca, Lucius Bestia, Quintus Curius, all of senatorial rank. With them were Marcus Fulvius Nobilor, Lucius Statilius, Publius Gabinius Capito, and Gaius Cornelius from the equestrian order, besides many persons from the military colonies and towns, men of rank in their own neighborhood. Many, however, of the nobility were associated in this plot, though they kept more in the background. These were spurred on rather by the hope of power than of want or any other necessity. Indeed, great numbers of young men, especially those of noble birth, were favorable to Catiline's attempt, and though, while tranquility lasted, they had every means of living in splendor and luxury, preferred the doubtful to the certain, and war to peace. There were, too, at this crisis, some who believed that Marcus Licinius Crassus was no stranger to the conspiracy. Gaius Pompeius, his personal enemy, was at the head of a large army, and Crassus was thought to be favorable to the growth of any influence that might balance his power, in the confident belief that, should the plot succeed, he would easily secure the chief place among its leaders. A few conspirators, it must be remarked, of whom Catiline was one, had before this formed a plot against the state, of which I will give the most accurate account I can. In the consulship of Lucius Tullus and Marcus Lepidus, Publius Atronius and Publius Sulla, the consuls-elect, were put on their trial and published under the bribery laws. A little after this, Catiline was charged with extortion, and so disqualified as a candidate for the consulship, since he could not give in his name within the legal time. At the same time, a certain Nius Piso, a young man of good birth, but needy, ill-affected, and of desperate daring, was being urged by his poverty and evil disposition to embroil the state. With this man, Catiline and Autronius discussed their plot about the first week in December and planned to murder the consuls, Lucius Cata and Lucius Torquatus, in the capital on January 1st, to seize the insignia of office for themselves, and send Piso with an army to hold the two Spanish provinces. The plot was discovered, and they again postponed their plans of murder to February 5th, 
On this occasion they were to contrive the destruction not only of the consuls, but of many of the senators, and had not Catiline, who was stationed in front of the senate house, been too hasty in giving the signal to his confederates, on that day would have been accomplished the worst outrage of any since the foundation of Rome. As it was, their armed supporters had not yet mustered in force, and this circumstance ruined the plot. Piso was subsequently sent as quaestor, with the powers of a praetor, to hither Spain. This appointment Crassus supported, as he knew Piso for a bitter enemy of Nius Pompeius, nor was the Senate unwilling to grant him a province in their eagerness to remove so abandoned a man from the sphere of politics, while many of the aristocracy looked on him in the light of a bulwark, and were already panic-stricken at the power of Pompeius. Piso, however, was murdered in his province by a troop of Spanish horse, at whose head he had placed himself on a march without any other force. Some would make out that the barbarians could not submit to the injustice, arrogance, and cruelty that marked his rule. Others that the horsemen were old and faithful dependents of Nias Pompeius, and attacked Piso with his consent. The Spaniards, they remarked, had never committed such an outrage on any other occasion, but had patiently submitted to much previous tyranny. I shall leave this point as an open question, and have now said enough about the earlier conspiracy. When Catiline saw assembled the men whom I named a little above, although he had held many communications with each of them separately, he yet thought it would serve his purpose to address and encourage them collectively. He conducted them, therefore, to a secluded part of his house, and then, having secured the absence of any witness, spoke somewhat as follows. Had I not myself tested your courage and loyalty, this favorable conjuncture would have offered itself in vain. Our hopes might have been high, and power have laid ready in our hands, but it would have availed nothing. I should not now be abandoning the certain, to pursue the doubtful, had I only cowardly or frivolous supporters to depend on. As it is, I have learnt your valor and devotion to myself on many important occasions, and my mind is therefore dared to embark on this greatest and noblest of attempts. I am encouraged, too, by my clear perception that, whether in good or evil fortune, your interests are identical with mine. For in this identity of hopes and fears lies the true bond of friendship. The plans which I have been revolving in my mind you have all separately heard ere now. For my own part, however, I find my spirit daily more on fire at the thought of what will be our lot if we fail to assert our claim to freedom. Ever since the government of the state was merged in the prerogatives and authority of a few influential men, it is to these that kings and princes have been made tributary, and peoples and races have paid their dues. We, the remainder of the nation, however energetic and virtuous, whatever our birth, whether noble or base, have formed an undistinguished crowd without interest or influence, and lie at the mercy of a party to whom, were the state in a sound condition, we should be a terror. Thus all influence and power, distinction and wealth remain in their own, or their favorite's hand. To us they have left danger, and rejections, prosecutions, and want. Bravest of men, what is the limit of your endurance? Is it not better to die once for all a brave man's death, than to drag out a life of misery and dishonor, 
as the butts of your enemy's insolence, and lose it shamefully at the end. But why speak of this? I call gods and men to witness that victory is within our grasp. Our age is in its prime, and our minds at their strongest. Our enemies are enfeebled by years and riches. We have only to make a beginning. The course of events will do the rest. And what man, with a temper worthy of that name, can brook their possession of a surplus of wealth, to squander on driving back the sea and leveling mountains, while we lack the means to procure even the necessaries of life? That they should join house to house, and houses to houses, while we have nowhere a hearth to call our own. They are buying pictures, and statuary, and plate, are pulling down the work of yesterday to build it anew, in a word, are squandering and abusing their wealth in all possible ways. And yet, though they indulge every passion to the full, they cannot exhaust their riches. We are met by poverty at home, and creditors abroad. Our fortunes are bad, our expectations still more forbidding. In fine, what have we left except the breath we draw in misery? Must I not bid you awake? Before you there dawns the freedom, for which we have often yearned, and now freedom, wealth, splendor, and glory rise before your eyes. Such, to the full, are the rewards which fortune has decreed to the conquerors. Your dangers and your beggary, the rich spoils which war offers, plead more powerfully with you than any words of mine. Use me as your general, or your fellow-soldier. My mind and my body shall ever be at your service. These very plans, I hope, with your aid, to carry into execution as consul, unless, happily, my mind deceives me, and you are more ready to serve than to command. These words were listened to by men who had every evil in abundance, but no good fortune, nor any hope of it. Great, however, as the wages of revolution appear to them, many yet asked Catiline to explain what would be the nature of the war, what the prizes their arms were to seek, what help he counted on, or hoped for, and from what quarter. He proceeded to promise them an abolition of debts, a proscription of the rich, magistracies and priestly offices, together with plunder and all the gratifications enjoyed by the victors in a war. In hither Spain, he continued, was Piso. In Mauritania, at the head of an army, Publius Sitius Nucorinus, both of them partners in their conspiracy, Gaius Antonius, too, was a candidate for the consulship, and he hoped to have him as colleague, as a man at once intimate with himself and entangled in the greatest difficulties. When himself consul, he should join Antonius in making the first move. He then railed and inveighed against the whole aristocratic party, made laudatory mention of each of his own followers, and reminded one of his poverty, another of his desires, many of the danger they stood in, or the shame they had undergone, and many more of the triumph of Sulla, in which they had found an opportunity for plunder. At last, seeing every mind thoroughly aroused, he bade them be zealous in support of his candidature, and dismissed the meeting. It was asserted by some at the time that Catiline, when, after making a speech, he was preparing to administer an oath to his accomplices, carried round in bowls a mixture of human blood and wine, and only revealed his design after all had tasted of it, with such an imprecation as was customary in solemn rites. 
This, they maintained, he did that their mutual consciousness of such an abomination might make them more loyal to each other. Some, however, were of the opinion that this story, together with many others, were invented by people who thought that the unpopularity which Cicero subsequently incurred would be diminished if the crimes of his victims were recognized as peculiarly hideous. The evidence I have found for the incident is too slight to support so monstrous a charge. Among the conspirators was a certain Quintus Curius, a man of no mean station. He was covered, however, with shame and crime, and his infamy had caused the censors to expel him from the Senate. The man was as frivolous as bold, and could neither keep a secret nor conceal his own crimes. In short, he was heedless alike of his words and deeds. Between him and a certain Fulvia, a woman of birth, there was a long-standing intrigue. He had lately fallen in her good graces, owing to his poverty making him less lavish in his presence, when suddenly he began to boast, making her outrageous promises, and threw out at times threats of violence should she fail to be compliant. In fine, his old behavior became more haughty than was his wont. On discovering the cause of Curio's strange conduct, Fulvia did not keep secret a danger so threatening to the state, but while, suppressing the name of her informant, told several persons what and how she had heard of Catiline's plot. This, more than anything else, roused men's zeal to confer the consulship on Marcus Tullius Cicero, during that time, many of the nobility had been in a ferment of jealousy, and had thought the consulship would be in a manner polluted if obtained by a man of no family, however distinguished. When, however, danger was imminent, jealousy and crime fell into the background. On the poll being taken, Marcus Tullius and Gaius Antonius were declared elected. This, as was afterwards seen, was the first blow that confounded the conspirators. It did not, however, lessen the frenzy of Catiline. On the contrary, his activity increased daily. He stored arms in suitable places throughout Italy, and conveyed money, borrowed on his own or his friend's security, to a certain Manlius at Faisulae, who afterwards took the first step in beginning the war. He is said also at this period to have gained over many men of every rank, with a number of women, who, though at the outset their beauty had provided them means to support their extravagance, now found their gains, but not their luxury, limited by advancing age, and consequently had contracted huge debts. Through them, Catiline hoped to tamper with the slaves of Rome, to fire the city, and either to win over or murder their husbands. End of Catiline Conspiracy, Part 2